You're listening to Freestyle Flavor. I'm your host, Chef Tarsha. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, stay tuned for my conversation with Chef Nompumelelo in Kwebu. Joining us live from Johannesburg, South Africa, we'll talk about her global success and critical acclaim, having taken the world stage through her self-published cookbook, Through the Eyes of an African Chef. And I'll ask her, what is the evolution of South African cuisine? You've got freestyle flavor. Put your listening ears on. Stay close. I'll be right back. Before I get cooking and serving, I want absolute still and quietness. And I want to be alone because I kind of get into that space where I zone myself, I'm centered, and by the time I come out, I'm calm. Um, and that's why and it's a big thing for me, not just for myself, but also for my staff and everyone that I work with. Um, we do all the prep, we do everything, and I always like to be on time. So as the guests are now coming in and finding their chairs and whatever, during that period, I don't want any running around. I want that we are done, we are seated, everyone is calm, and everyone just center themselves and get their minds, you know, zoned into where we're going now. So for my food, my roots are my food identity. Um, because without that, I don't have an identity. So where I come from, the crops that are indigenous here, my food history, the culture, all of that, that gives me my food identity. You've got Freestyle Flavor, a podcast cookumentary highlighting all things food. Stay posted for my conversations with cooks, educators, farmers, ranchers, and regular folks talking about the flavors we all love. We'll learn so much about where our food is coming from, recipe profiles, ingredients, and fanfare tasty fanfare stay posted our next episode is coming up now chef nonpumelelo welcome to freestyle flavor Thank you, Chef. Thank you for inviting me and having me on your show. I am super excited. This is my first international interview. 
And yay, I'm excited. Uh, What time is it there? You're in Johannesburg, South Africa. Yes, it's 10 in the morning. Oh, it's 10. Okay. Well, I was, I I thought I was timing this at 11, (laughs) but. Oh, that's fine. Yes, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning here in Houston, Texas, in the United States. So, uh, yeah, this is awesome. (laughs) What's the weather like? Um, Well, we're still enjoying, you know, the last bits of summer. So, it's a beautiful sunny day. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Look at this. Water and Uh everything. Yeah, we've got lots of bird life here. Um, It's my favorite pastime, just taking pictures of the different bird life that visit. Yeah. Um, But it's, yeah, it's beautiful, sunny. Yeah, you have a nice view there. Uh, I'm going to try to let this be as vivid for the listeners. Uh, Chef Nompumelelo. What what, what is your nickname? Mpume. Mpume. Chef Mpume is um, joining me via Zoom. So fortunately, we're able to see each other, which is so nice. Uh, But she's got quite a view, a little lake looks like. What is that? A river, a ravine? A lake. Yeah, that is really nice. So beautiful. And you're on a terrace. Mm. Do you grow anything on the, immediately when you show me vegetation I go straight into my agricultural mind. So are you growing anything? Yes, uh, uh I grow herbs. Okay. Yes, so mainly for my cooking. Mhm. Um a few medicinal but uh, majority um for my cooking. Mhm. So uh herbs can be quite expensive. Right. So all your ordinary thyme, rosemary, parsley, all of that, I grow. Mm-hmm. I I, yeah. I do as well. Um, I like to grow my herbs for my signature dishes. And I advocate everyone grow herbs. Even if they uh, think they can't grow, that's the sure start right there to transforming their diet as well. Um, herbs pulling away from salt but I grow my own herbs uh and I dry them out for my own seasonings for my signature chicken and my signature this and that so yeah that's great yeah yeah Yeah. well let's let's uh start at the beginning tell me what is your first food memory wow yeah take it back Okay, my first food memory. Wow. Right now, um, what I'm imagining, um, I think you always go back to things that you're fond of. And one of the fond memories is obviously visiting my grandmother who lived in the Midlands. um, And she ran what you would call a diner. So I felt pretty special running behind the counters and going into her kitchen. Um, and I remember she used to do the organic steamed chicken with vegetables mm. and do steamed bread with that. Okay, steamed and bread. I, yes, yes. Um, I can remember the, the smell. Like I'm sitting here right now. Yeah. I can smell it in my mind. 
Wow. Did you cook with yeah. your grandmother? I did. Um, obviously, you know, growing up um, back in the days, a typical African home. Um, yes, there was gender typical things, but as a girl, you were brought up in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, but in my home, boys as well. So it wasn't just girls and my father cooked okay. very well. So um, definitely there were things that by a certain age you were taught. And I remember the first thing I was taught was porridge. Okay. Uh, yes, from a young age, I had to know how to stir the porridge. What's the porridge there. made of? Um, it would be either sorghum or maize. Okay. Um, and later on introduce um, uh, oats as well. Mm -hmm. So cooking something like porridge was like your first thing. You have to know how to cook porridge. Then you'd move on to um, salads, steaming vegetables, and then learning the steamed bread, which is a thing as well. And there's two different ones. There's one with the corn and there's one which is plain with just flour and yeast. And so steamed bread, is that like a dumpling or? Uh, um, you know, for us, it's different. They eat, we do have a dumpling. Okay. Um, and the dumpling you cook in the stock. Okay, right. But we have the steamed bread, which we cook almost like you would, um, you know how you keep your vegetables hot um, and you have your bain-marie with water. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the technique, the bain-marie technique. So the water must be at the bottom of the pot but mustn't touch the bread mm -hmm. and you close the lid and you steam it uh, is the uh, is it actually in a steam basket though meaning yes okay and use different things you can use a plate but when you use a plate you obviously have to use something to lift the plate make sure once it starts boiling yeah it doesn't um yes bubble over the water okay that's interesting what what's the consistency of that then if it's not like a dumpling, because I still would feel like it would be it, it would chewy like similar okay. to a dumpling, but obviously um, on the outside okay. it is not um, wet, wet, yeah. like a dumpling. Yes, okay. um, so it's a clean bread that you can just slice, but it's there in my cookbook. Okay, okay, good. I gotta get the cookbook. <laughs> um, yeah, it's there for, it's, for the visuals to, to kind of imagine what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so that it sounds like then there is a standard tradition uh, of learning how to cook. So should we think that we would see all of the majority or maybe uh, given a certain time frame, I don't know what Africa is like now for young ladies uh, but of a certain age would all young ladies know how to cook most would have but you know things would depend from house to house mm -hmm. etc um, and nowadays not so much mm -hmm. um, I would say because people are leaving home at a much younger age right. than they used to um, because they go to universities and and, and that um, but also the lifestyle has changed right. um, and thus I find a lot of young people approaching me for cooking lessons because they do not know how to cook mm. and then I'll be like you can't cook right <laughs> I teach a lot of them myself 
<laughs> yeah, so that has been amazing, but that has also pushed me to teach my boys. Yes. Um, so my boys can cook. Um, yeah. So it's now just introducing um, difficult techniques, mm. um, you know, what to do for crumbly. Like we have putu. Um, I think you can imagine couscous, but it, the grains are slightly bigger than couscous. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit of a technique and it takes time for you to learn how to do that, for you to see that you put enough maize, meal, um, how much to put in, how much water, so that it is crumbly but not dry. Mm-hmm. It's moist but it doesn't end up um, as if you're cooking porridge. So, so it's, it's kind of like grits. It's technique for us is it kind of like grits for us or polenta maybe or well uh, when i was in the u.s odd enough i did use grits Mm -hmm. to make putu um Mm -hmm. because that's all they could find so i could use polenta i could use put uh, i could use uh grits as well okay so either one of the two it's just that the consistency is different right okay but you can imagine using grits to make um something that looks like couscous okay yeah well there's definitely a technique there because uh if you're keeping it dry then you have to have a technique for sure for that yeah, yeah. How, how so now you... i'm to introducing that because um i i wanted my boys to know how to cook mm-hmm. um how old are your boys 23 and uh 16 okay well yeah definitely they need to know i am an advocate for uh, for all people to know how to cook all young people to have uh some self-sufficiency some some independence sustainability as i like to call it um so yeah i teach very young kids i used to teach in culinary school as well um but uh i teach little kids and I definitely advocate little boys, little girls, get in here, cook. I also teach them about gardening. So where's your food coming from? Uh, less safety and sanitation, you know. Um, so I start them out using real knives and letting yep. them know if you cut yourself, you've cut yourself. So let's pay attention. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You said your dad is a good cook or was a good cook. Is your dad still with you? No, he's light. Okay. Um, yes, yes. Um, my dad was a great cook. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, when they say turning um, lemons to lemon juice? Yes. That kind of saying? Yeah. Yes. Um, so my dad, uh, his mother passed away when he was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, so his father married again, and his stepmother was, yeah, from hell. Mm. <laughs> so as a as a teen boy, they grew up in um, in an area in the north coast. So they would see quite a few missionaries coming through, um, and he would ask them like, "Where are you coming from?" So they had to explain they came by ship and this that and the other and um i believe as a teenager he ran away from home mm-hmm. running away from his stepmother and he got himself a job mm-hmm. and back then uh with his skin color he could only get two jobs as a cleaner or as a cook yeah and he opted to be a cook 
Well, then he, he probably was a really good. That, he probably ended up being a professional cook then, huh? <laughs> he was a great cook. I mean, he also got a chance to travel the world, which oh, really? is something he probably, when he left home, um, didn't have a full picture what it would end up like. Mm-hmm. So in so many ways, um, I always say we were very fortunate to have a father who traveled at a young age his eyes were open yeah. and and yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, and and, I think, and and allowed you then and your maybe your siblings to grow through having had that vision of the world and different cultures yes very much um diversity but also while diverse also being very rooted in who you are mm-hmm. um, some of the things that he passed on i always say it's amazing he passed on when we we're very young but he brought us up almost like adults mm-hmm. like we were ready for the world mm-hmm. as he had been yes yes yeah. i think from his own experience so he had that but very you know kind of a balance of that and quite loving at the same time like sundays where my father's cooking so he would be the first one up sunday morning um i always laugh when i see this um stereotypes where they show a black person brushing teeth and how they start coughing in the bathroom cleaning their time mm-hmm. and that is what actually used to wake me up out here him coughing in the bathroom <laughs> shaving you know then I knew, okay, he's he's ready. He's up. Um, it's, it's time. And I start smelling the breakfast because we do breakfast for us kids. And then we go to church. When we come back from church, we have lunch. Because by the time we go, he would have prepped half of the lunch. When we come back, he finishes off when we sit down to lunch. So I loved his Sunday cooking. You know, my dad uh, was the first chef I ever knew as well. My dad is still with me, fortunately, and um, he really jump-started my love for food. Um, He also was a very strict person in the kitchen with regard to everything needs to be cleaned and, you know, wash the dishes. I cooked, you guys wash the dishes. Clean as you go. (laughs) Right, right, right. But I do have that memory as well. My dad used to make... um, what we call country uh, breakfasts, big, even though I'm from Connecticut originally, but my dad, I grew up basically in Texas and my dad uh, used to cook. I, we woke up to pancakes, eggs, hash browns, uh, you know, name something, biscuit. It was just the full deal. And yeah, um, so I, 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 I'm sure that impacts me on how I think that young men do need to be able to cook because yeah. my dad is a great cook. Yeah. Uh, peach cobblers was his thing and sweet potato pies, you yeah. know, so holidays, <laughs> certain holidays he was, you know, so yeah. So that's, that's great. That's, that's a good food memory, you know, and then that's something that I'm sure you share with your boys you know, just the memory of him. Yes, definitely. It has definitely helped me to to do that, like his favorite dishes, the soups, like on cold days, um, chili. Um, and he was actually introduced to chili through the um, travels through Mexico. Wow. Um, and he loved chili. So we had bird chilies and... Um, 
cayenne, uh, whatever yeah. chili he could get his hands on, and he used to love pickling as well. Yeah. So he'd pickle quite a few of those items. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Um, I my mind goes back to you mentioning your grandmother as I think about us being in International Women's Month and the observation of that. Um, and you're saying that she owned a diner. What Would that have been during apartheid time? Uh, yes, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always say to people, each time... I feel despondent or feel like, oh yeah, you know, racism and the world and this and that. I always think back to her and think all odds were against her. Yeah. She was a woman, an African woman mm-hmm. growing up in South Africa. And she had actually come from the Eastern Cape, which is closer to the Western Cape, Cape Town. Mm-hmm. And she had come to um, inland, which is KZN, where she ended up. Um, and she met her husband there, who also was an immigrant from Swaziland. Okay. So, uh, it wasn't the best of situations. And she, just like my father, had left home very young. Mm-hmm. Barely a teenager because of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, the parents couldn't feed them anymore. And it was like children going to the world, go and fend for yourself, see what to do. So his brother went to Kimberley to work in the mines and he went to KZN where opportunities to work obviously for a farmer or something was something to look into. I'm not sure where she started off, but I know that she ended up marrying my grandfather who was a translator of the court and she opened a diner. And the fact that my grandfather worked in the court helped bring some frequent customers for lunch oh yeah yeah so yeah which um, probably would have been a a different demographic which would have led to a lot of her success too probably yes it was quite mixed yeah Um, that's great um, um, migrants as well identifying with my grandfather Um, at the same time regardless of race I'm sure some of his colleagues uh, now got to know the person and respected the person and then were open to go to his wife's um, place. Mm-hmm. Um, needless to say, it was always packed. Every time we were there, it was it was busy. It was in town, you know, old town, not like the big cities we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was beautiful. So I always looked to her um, and she never wanted to leave her diner. Um, <laughs> In her last days, moving her was a struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, she was um, ill of health and she refused. She would be taken to the doctor or hospital and wants to go back. Yeah. Uh, until it got to a certain point where it was like, you know, it's a bit of touch and go now with your health. Yeah. We need you to come live with us. We need to sell the business. Mm-hmm. So it was it was hard. There's the business. Uh, did you guys sell it? Is it still around? Uh, we were young, no, my mother okay. and sister and her sister, they sold the business. Okay, okay. Wow, that's a great story. That is very inspiring. 
you know, um, which says a lot about you. And uh, you're very inspiring as well. We'll learn more about that as we go on. Tell me about how you, uh, well, I, I, I want to ask about your education as a chef. However, I want to ask about what was your life before you decided to be a chef? Did you have another job or career or what? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I've always been a, a rebel with a cause. So my mom wanted me to do law, which was actually my second option. But because she wanted me to do law, I was like, no, you must let me do maritime, which is what I wanted to do. And wow. she refused, uh, claiming that I would travel and end up uh, settling late like my father did. So I took a year to work and the year after I took myself to college to do marketing management, which is what I could afford. Mm -hmm. So from then, um, essentially I always say I've always worked all my life. Um, I remember we had Me to too. fight my mother in high school where we wanted weekend jobs. So fortunately my older sister got a job in town and I was like, no, I also got a job at a beach shop. Because then we were growing up in Margate, which is in the South Coast, where my father and mother owned a general dealer. And we worked at the beach shop. So I have always worked retail um, throughout college, went into recruitment, which I always say was the most fulfilling job to be able to provide a job for somebody else. Yeah. That was the most fulfilling. And um, and then when I stopped, I was in commodities, logistics, wow. and uh, yes. You and go. I well, you were making money. Time. You were making money. Yes, lady. And affirmative action had just been introduced <laughs> and my Swiss-based company was not impressed that I was leaving because Obviously, I was on the plan for yeah. them to market themselves as having this young diversity. Yeah, fast track. And, and a candidate. Yeah. And a lot of people around me as well, I must say, they were not impressed because everything I was doing were things they'd never heard of. I was, I had worked for this Dutch-based company where we used to look after the petroleum and everything for BP, for Engine, and all of those kind of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we, but I think at that time, that's when I started learning a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, um, I, we used to supply a lot of the food and cosmetic, food cosmetics and commodities companies when I was with a Swiss-based company. We used to do chemicals that go into soap, mm-hmm. that go into your cleanser. Mm-hmm. That goes into your spices, your whatever. I started learning a lot about what goes into our food, what goes into our detergents. And I can tell you now, I wasn't happy. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that I used to see go into cleaning stuff, would you end up in food? And I'd be like, uh, why are we eating that? Mm-hmm. We're not eating it anymore, huh? <laughs> Why am I putting that on my face? Yeah, <laughs> and right. And you better off not using that. Right. 
that whatever is in that moisturizer is also in your washing soap. So mm. what's it doing to your skin mm -hmm. um, that makes it so matte? Mm -hmm. And you're so happy that it's making your skin matte. It's like, well, that's what happens to your hands when they've been in that detergent. Right. So I think it was at that time, and then I started some soul searching, which is why I think a lot of people would not have understood my decision. Um, and it was, I cannot, I didn't believe in this. It doesn't matter that I was earning well. It doesn't matter that the look, future looked bright. I could see Switzerland, you know, yeah, uh, as a possibility out there. But it started bothering me. I also had children. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking my children are, are, are eating this. You know, I changed a lot mm -hmm. in terms of what I buy. I started finding farmers markets and, and all of that. But then I decided, no, what do I want to do? I get out of here. I love people, love talking. I've got marketing background. Then I thought, yeah, going to advertising. Yeah, maybe. But I love food. But I had always done it as a hobby. So for people, for friends, for church, for anything like that, back business. Right. I remember everyone always commented that I always did the most amazing fish dishes. And I said, well, I always did seafood because everywhere I went, people were just cooking chicken and red meat. Like, yeah. We also have fish, you know, also have mussels. We've got, you know, yeah. and I grew up and I was born in a sea in along coast. the coast yeah. and grew up along the coast. So why aren't we cooking enough of, of um, seafood? So everything I do, I like to do it proper. So I decided to uh, resign, take my package, and I went to cooking school. Wow, that was an amazing, that's a huge decision that I'm sure a lot of people probably said, you're crazy, why would you, and you're going to be a cook, you know? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes aunt who's a pharmacist and she was not impressed <laughs> he refused for my cousin to become a chef and now i'm leaving this corporate job with an international company to go and cook yeah but you can continue cooking at home what's wrong with that that's right and back then um celebrity chefs and tv cooking wasn't a, a huge thing right exactly. so they hadn't even seen that. Yeah. So cooks are broke. Look, cooks are broke. They're not uh, making the money you were making at the time uh, or whatever. So so that was a major decision. And, and that says a lot about you as well. Tapping into, you know, purpose, you know, passion and purpose, um, yep. which is in your DNA. <laughs> So you went to culinary school, yes, or what? Yes, I went to culinary school, a school of food and wine in South Africa. And much to my disappointment, discovered that a cooking school in South Africa isn't teaching indigenous food. I was learning French-based cooking methods, um, dishes from all over the world, but yeah. Um, and it is actually then that I started developing some of my recipes because I'm like, oh, okay, I'm being taught how to make gnocchi. Right. So instead of using these potatoes, why aren't I introducing my own ingredients then? Mm -hmm. School won't do it, I'll do it. So I started, when I get home, I take the gnocchi recipe, I replace the potato with the taro root. Mm -hmm. um, 
and um, obviously my discovering that the consistency will be very different because the taro roots are far more sticky exactly. than potato. And then I, I worked the recipe. So it, it was those kind of recipes. And also um, realizing that actually um, we never had sugar in our diet. And thus we didn't have dessert mm. per se. So we didn't have sweets and, and all of that. So I started learning, you know, we were at a period where it was said um, our African food is unhealthy. And that's why we were having health problems problems and weight and etc and then I started seeing that actually we were moved away from our diet yeah our indigenous crops were destroyed so our cuisine was destroyed we had taken world food um, and a lot of what we're consuming was not indigenous so it makes sense that we were having so many health problems yeah um, was there um, because uh it, it what screams out to me is food security which is another bell for me um when you talk about not having access is it not having access or just not utilizing what was there it was it, it, it's a huge thing um mm-hmm. i mean the whole if you if you read up on the history around apartheid you realize that moving people from their land destroy their livelihoods yeah because people back then could grow and eat could grow their own food and they would eat so people didn't starve Mm -hmm. but obviously people were moved from their land um the whole country was being transformed becoming industrialized some were being forced into labor, you know, so the whole dynamics of how life was just changed completely, which is why you would find that, uh, like with my grandmother, she had to leave home mm-hmm. to go and find a job because now family no longer has, you know, huge plots of land. Plus, remember how long it, t- it took from the British colonization then later on apartheid, those were hundreds of years. Yeah. With everything that was done to the indigenous people, along the way, there was also loss of knowledge mm-hmm. to be passed on. Yeah. So- and, and one of those most heartbreaking, I met um, this lovely guy, a white farmer, who was telling me... Um, how lovely my recipe for uh, the amaranthus is and how sad he was when he was driving um, past a farm and he found a farm worker busy spraying the amaranthus Mm -hmm. because he thought it was a weed, Mm -hmm. spraying it with chemicals and he didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And um, he had to tell him to stop, you can actually eat eat this and etc. I then said to him, isn't it sad that in his family, through the generations, that knowledge has been lost. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't taught, yeah. Yeah, and his father had worked for the same farmer and he is now working for the very same owner. Wow. And um, they just have to do what he's telling them. So they are destroying their own food, working for him. They don't have their own land. I said, isn't that sad? 
but that's how far it gets. Mm-hmm. So food was lost. Um, I mean, sorghum is something that we're trying to bring back, but obviously they had to wipe out the sorghum um, for maize. Yeah, yeah. That's the 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 conversation we could have just on that is so vast. Uh, I have a friend of mine who is a very dear friend from Tanzania. And uh, I have uh, an organization that's a nonprofit where we teach about uh, growing your own food, raised beds, those kinds of things. And uh, he says to me, you know, in this country, you know, you all don't know what food is around you. So you will starve with food all around you because you don't know. Yeah. You know, I, for the longest time, was growing taro, and I didn't know it. You know, I just yeah. thought, oh, this is, you know, I, I love the foliage. And I kept saying, why is this, you know, like a potato every time I try to, you know, and the the lack of knowledge of knowing what it was was making me throw it away, you know. <laughs> and I have had, all the calcium. Oh my goodness, right? And I would have, uh, I've had so many different people come to our gardens from all over the world. Somebody came from Hawaii. They were so excited to see the tarot there. And, you know, so it's interesting um, what you say. We grow amaranth too. And it. And if you don't know, yeah, it does look like a weed. And it will take over. Yeah. So you, you know, if I do teach about um, culture around the world through growing different kinds of food so that's very that's very important so food security is something that's big with you food history uh i watched your ted talk and i was very impressed i said oh i've got a synergy with this lady you know the things that you were saying um you talked about being tasked basically with the challenge to um, dispel the, the the perceptions of African yeah. food, you know, yeah. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it ties in what with what I just said, mm-hmm. and thus you find that, for instance, um, we used to use animal fat for cooking. We didn't use fish oil or all of the oils that are available today. But uh, we are now labeled as having very oily food. And we're like, well, there were no cooking schools taking our ancestors to teach them how to use this very oil, which was just being uh, given now because they no longer had their animals. Right. Um, which they used to rear. And every time they slaughtered, you know, there are different ways of preserving the oil and etc. Mm-hmm. So now they're introduced to new foods that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of food. Um, and there's this map of Af- food from Africa that always grinds me that I see making the rounds on social media from time to time. And somehow nobody ever owns up to it. Um, they would actually write dishes that are supposed to be indigenous to different parts of Africa. Mm-hmm. And I always see even comments from people from other parts of Africa. They were like, who told you that's our indigenous food? Which but is what? Kind of Fufu? Is that one? Uh, you know, different. Obviously, with South Africa, they had something called boboti. Okay. Um, 
and Popoti is um, Malaysian. So it came with uh, the Malaysians when they were brought in um, as slaves. Um, and if you go to Durban, you would have Bani Chow, which came, uh, the curry itself, which is only the curry, mm -hmm. came with the Indian slaves who were brought in to cut sugar cane. But they don't want to put food that was indigenous. What were the koi eating? What were the sand people eating? What were the closer people eating? All of that kind of, once you start bringing up that topic, even right now, it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we must pretend, like like the Americans and the Red Indians, like let's pretend they, they were never there before everybody got there. That's right. And, um, let's pretend it never existed. And I'm kind of like, well, it did exist. They were there. That's right. That's right. It's it's kind yeah. of like soul food, you know, here, yeah. you know, and the, the limitation of, uh, you know, black people and basically all of us know how to, and that's all we're good at is soul food, you know, and greens, first of all, is the best thing you can eat, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So knowing how to. Yeah, it's not only that, it's like this came through the Malaysians, this popoti, but when it's put out there, it's put out as a Dutch dish. So as if it came from Europe. Mm. So I'm like, no, wait, wait, let's, let's tell the real story. This is what the Malaysian slaves brought to South Africa mm -hmm. for Boti. So mm -hmm. let's tell the right history. That would be like something that the African-Americans brought to America. Yeah. But you would suddenly call it Italian. Right. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Right. Let's tell the real story. So when the African slaves were brought into America, they came with us and they started cooking this dish. So you cannot take now soul food dish and call it Italian. Right. It never came from Ita Italy and you're kind of trying to sanitize history, you know, in a detrimental way because you need to give credit where it's due. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what I'm about. Um, the Malaysian slaves brought something to this country. The slaves from India brought something to this country. Let's honor that. Let's tell the real food history. Mm -hmm. What is the food history that you're trying to tell on indigenous South African food? Um, I'm telling a crops that are indigenous to the land, to the animals, and saying, we are talking about climate change, for instance. Yeah. And we know from scientific studies, crops that are indigenous um, are, have a better chance of withstanding climate change. You know, in the yeah, weather. They call them superfoods. <laughs> you know, come up with all sorts of names. Everything has to sound trendy. Right. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm kind of like, there's not, we're not saying we're going to destroy all other foods, but how about we bring back, you know, forgotten foods, forgotten skills, um, and we can add other things to them. But let's stop rubbing them off and pretending as if they never existed mm. we need to bring them back obviously mother earth is telling us something climate change is telling us something and we must stop feeding the soil and the land 
um, what it doesn't know. We have so much sugarcane in this country, mm. and it's not organic. Right. And you can imagine what they're doing to the soil. A lot of the sugarcane fields um, lay in wasted soil. The soil soil dies, and we know that dead soil is dead. Yeah. yeah. No food. No life. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, you said that in your young days you didn't have sugar in your diet. So do you consume sugar? How has it changed now? I remember we had a previous conversation and you talked about your time here in the United States with and the revelation of how much sugar is actually in our diet, including a staple like bread. So, um, and it's true. I mean, sugar is in everything here. That's our big problem. Yeah. No, you know, when we go back to our food history, we find that um, we had sugar naturally from produce, from berries, mm-hmm. um, and bananas, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. We didn't have, you know, processed, uh, processed sugar. sugar. Uh, no, we didn't. So, and thus... You didn't find a lot of uh, huge menus around desserts and, and stuff like that. So I've actually had to create desserts. Mm-hmm. Um, where I've said, oh, okay, this is sweet. And yeah, we can add a little bit more honey to make it sweeter because now our pellets are used to sugar. Because mm-hmm. now we're eating a lot more sugar than our ancestors did, right. which talks to our health problems as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's why I then had to work on like the pumpkin pudding, uh, which is just something that as a child, it tasted so much sweeter than it did much later in life. Mm-hmm. And then you discover how our food has changed, the vegetables, like the pumpkin isn't naturally sweet as it used to. Right. Yeah. Uh, so now you have to add a bit of honey in order to enjoy that dish. So it, it is things like that that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring back, uh, but not only bring back to document, um, so that for generations that come after me, I'm hoping they can take it forward. Yeah. Um, and we can make a change in our diet. We can make a change in how we do things. And uh, we can work with the climate. We can work with Mother Earth instead of trying to fight Mother Earth. Right. You are... Um putting a roadmap down for the evolution of uh, food in South Africa, which I think is huge. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about your taking on self-publishing, the idea to self-publish your first cookbook. I know you're, are you right? You're working on another one now, I think. But your your cookbook, tell, tell me about your cookbook. It's, it was put out when, in 2017? Or 18, yes, yes. okay. And, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I I saw that things hadn't changed since I left cooking school. The, the, the young chefs that were coming out of cooking schools uh, were still learning the same things that I was learning. Um, and, and they, they still are. <laughs> and if they, they came from government cooking schools, it was even worse because they were not exposed to the... Uh, equipment like one of the things that I complained about I started approaching I mean I personally approached some of these cooking schools and said can I assist 
and you find that when you walk in the students are working with electric stoves and one of my first question was like which restaurant has electric stoves oh. all restaurants have gas yeah well as a cooking stool cooking school you should have gas stoves not electric because mm-hmm. it, it's a disfavor to the young chef mm-hmm. they walk into that kitchen restaurant kitchen the first day they're burning food yeah because you know working with a gas stove mm-hmm. and being used to that mm-hmm. you know you get you understand you put the pan it's hot now right you know um immediately you 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 get used to it and it's a skill and, it's yeah. a skill yeah. because and, i can cook, have- i can start a fire anywhere and cook something so that is a tangible a real skill yeah so it was it was those things so i then saw and then i started something called star chef um and i asked them to do indigenous recipes i can promise you i had dishes from europe american dishes and i was like guys but do don't you know what is indigenous to south africa and they didn't no right they don't so teach I had that. to sit them down and like I send back all the applications I said you're going to have to redo this you have to think about your genetic makeup mm-hmm. what is your mother what is your father what's your grandfather borrow from that what do you see them cook when you have your family dues take that use your chef skills and that's what I want to see in the competition so over the years it got better Um so that's when I knew I had to write I had to document I and that's why through the eyes of an African chef because I want nobody to tell me no nothing no one's going to say oh this that or the other I was like through my eyes yes and this is what it is and again for myself I suppose I wanted to um kind of emulate you know what I had been taught but also the talk in terms of what I telling what I'm telling the younger chefs mm-hmm. which is I also use my identity yes so my grandmother who's closer had brought something into my identity right her husband who's swati my father's mother that brought something into my identity my father from kwazulu natal you know all of that comes into play and then where i grew up in terms of geographical area how it influenced me like when my parents were raising us in 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 the south coast um we had access to so much fish so that played a big role in my life so i was teaching them you you take you know your food identity and that's what you're going to take to the world yeah exactly and uh it's difficult to deprogram uh students uh from culinary structure school which is part of what i found difficult as a culinary instructor uh i really wanted to and so and someone who had not only been okay an instructor um with in the classroom but i had also worked you know so there's a difference between people who have practical experience and are just classroom people uh oh, so i found cute. it difficult to not bring in that real practical like this is what's really going on uh so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. let me let me let me let me 
tighten this up a little bit more as we get to a close on this. I want to find out about you as a woman and a chef, being a chef, uh, being, you know, you, you took on global acclaim with your cookbook. I think it's, um, great that you self-published your book and it's so beautiful. I have seen the preview and gone through some of the recipes class act, you know, on that and you deserve every accolade. And I'm glad that you got that. You know, I'm glad that you brought a light to South Africa, uh, South African women chefs. And so what also have you seen in terms of being a female chef as a challenge? Mm. Well, self-publishing, I had to because I didn't want them to change the title of the book and I didn't want to be told to sanitize this, that or the other, Mm -hmm. especially around the food history. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew, I did try going with the publishers and already the feedbacks I was getting, I was like, no, I'm not doing this. So that's that. But being a female chef, um, as you can imagine, um, it's the same all over the world, Uh, the misogyny. Yes. And um, I've always wondered, um, and I have my own conclusions now, why male chefs uh, globally felt they had to make kitchens violent um, yeah. in terms of language, physical, you know? Yeah. And I always said, I don't know whether other males would mock male chefs as being feminine for becoming cooks. Mm-hmm. So. They had to show that they're hardcore and therefore the swearing and and I thought, but it's not necessary. It's a very unnatural environment. Yeah, so for me it was, and and the the most amazing thing, majority of them have been brought up by women who cook for them. Exactly. Very ironic. Inspiration from women. And then they come into industry and somehow women don't belong in the kitchen. Yeah. And I'm like, women belong to anywhere they choose to be. Yes. My place is not only in the boardroom. It's in the boardroom when I want to be in the boardroom. Right. My place is on a piece of land as a farmer if I want to be. And my place is in the kitchen if I want to be in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So um, it's... And I'm the one who taught you how to do it. First of all, <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's a huge thing here as well, where male chefs are the exec chefs. Um, in fact, it started with race, you know, and also geographical. When I was a student, head chefs had to come from Europe. You know, we had a huge complex as South Africans. If they were not European, you know, they were not good enough. Okay. And over time, then that kind of changed. You started seeing white South Africans as well becoming exec chefs but they would still stick to males. Uh, it's a huge thing. It's not stopping. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not seeing, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm sad that some women felt like they had to be part of a boys club and kind of trying to push other women around as well in order to get on. Mm-hmm. Um, and saying there's someone who walked into um, the cooking world thinking that I want to be a pastry chef because I was quite good with that. Mm-hmm. But when I actually got into the hot kitchen, I was like, no, I like this. Actually, I'm staying here and I have the personality for it and no one's going to push me around. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew. <laughs> Those who tried <laughs> knew. <laughs> 
when you, when you come with that energy, really, they they back up. They try you though. They do try you. It's no question yes. about that. What about in your? I, and by the way, I did specialize as a pastry chef, but just to drop on that. But what about uh, you know in your business as a woman, running a staff, running a crew, taking on all various jobs? I, I you know read in your history that you represented the uh, South Africa in the World Cup uh, at one time showcasing food. So those are a lot of big and various things as a woman to navigate staff and crew to. Mm. Mm. Not easy. Yep. Not easy. You still find you hire the guys and they think they're coming to take over and you hire some of these that think that um, chefing is all about uh, swearing and this, that, and the other, and me having to set the rules in my kitchen, you swear nobody. Mm-hmm. And for me to notice you, your food must speak for you. Mm-hmm. I don't need to hear your voice. Let your food speak for you. That should grab my attention, and that has been my stand um, in the kitchen. And it's um, run, and and that's what the kitchen is. And with the girls, much as I'm very much of a feminist, uh, I've also had this thing of we are girls. Um, we we have to run as well. That's exactly right. Don't now go to the uh, walk-in fridge and stand there like, oh, I need somebody to take a sack of potatoes for me. No, right, darling, grab that sack of potatoes. Go to wherever you're supposed to go, pull your weight, do what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And it is what it is. And it's like, for you um, to stand your ground, you, you do your work. Yep. And, and that's what it's been for me. And I think they've seen, when you are with me, I am moving, it is fast. And I'm one of those, I hate caterers that are late. I hate chefs that are late, mm-hmm. have to be on time we wait for the client the client doesn't wait for us that's right and so yes that's very much me and my thing the- is you're you're not at you're not uh at the party you're working the party you know so yeah. remember yeah. that too yeah. yeah 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 so that that has been a thing but it's it's not easy as you understand navigating those spaces as well standing up to males who feel you need to go to certain places with them in order for you to be awarded this or the other i've had to walk away from a lot of opportunities because of that and it's kind of like uh, i would stand in my own merit yeah um and if you feel my merit isn't good enough then well it is what it is What is uh, coming up for you and how do we get in touch with you? Okay, um, working on two cookbooks. One is small and my main one, the main one is going to take forever. Um, obviously with COVID, everything has slowed down. So I'm working on that. I've been doing a lot of um, contribution into cookbooks. There's one coming out in the US now in May. Oh. Uh, what world chefs feed their children. So I contributed to that. I believe you can pre-order copies now. Okay. It's coming out in June. Um, and um, I'm doing a lot of online talks. 
some cooking um, as well, but I am finding that people are becoming sticky. If you partner with them, if it's online, people have to pay for it. So they hold the materials kind of thing. Oh yeah, so I'm exactly. So a bit of that. I had some, I had a session with a crew from Boston and we did that online. So I did a, a cooking demonstration and talk around our food, eating plant-based, which is very much African mm-hmm. um, because I always say it's a joke because we had game and therefore hunting for game was not something that was guaranteed mm-hmm. and our food was more plant-based than meat so there's nothing wrong with eating meat but at the same time it's not taboo for Africans to eat plant-based yeah it, it, it was always our diet mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm doing a lot more of that and uh, ooh, a lot of things are on hold due to COVID as soon as we know vaccines are done roads are open to travel there's lots of events that one has been invited to talks and cooking demos how fabulous how do how does somebody get in touch with you okay so the best way i have a website which is www.nompumeledomkwebu.africa which is just my name and surname uh, you look for me on Instagram, same thing, my full name and surname, Nopo Melelum You find me on Instagram. I'm very good with responding, as you would know. Yes. Um, <laughs> send me a direct message if it's private. Um, also on Twitter, not as active, but I'm there on Twitter. That's where we get the news these days. Mm-hmm. And that's how we found out that a big change is happening in America. Yay! That's that's a, we're we're we we had to first dance in the desert, honey, before we got here, yeah. but now we're here. Yeah. <laughs> My last last question is: You are speaking of desert. You are banned to a desert island and you have a kitchen crate so that's that milk crate what are you going to put in your crate ah desert island am I bringing the ingredients that I'm taking to the desert island only what can fit in the milk crate okay so I have whatever it is I have my taro root in there. I have my baobab. I have to have my coconut milk because my dairy won't last me in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) I have to have my coconut milk with which I'm going to have my baobab to give me energy out there. Um, I have to have my dried meat, my game meat, which I've dried up, take to the desert. What meat is that? Uh, Hey? What meat is that, dried? Um, maybe a uh, kudu. Okay, we'll yes, look that maybe. up. Look, <laughs> maybe I've got my kudu meat that is dried up for me there with uh, quite a bit of fat on it, and I have my dried vegetables, my mangoes, my bananas, my you know various fruit that I can fit in there in my water. Oh, is okay. So you have no cooking utensils. Yes. And just my chef's knife. That's all I do. My chef's knife does everything. Because you can build a fire, huh? 
Well, I find twigs <laughs> on the desert, and I will, like my ancestors did, I'll build a fire. Yes, right. <laughs> it has been my pleasure to speak with you. I am so excited. I feel like I have a new sister in South Africa. And definitely join the crowd. Yeah, and I celebrate your success in your mission, really. I I think it's very important. And I say that we are sisters because I am on the same mission here. And that is to um, bring about, uh, continue to link the chains in legacy and let that be connected to history and the truth about our food. Yeah. So I celebrate you, you, Chef Nompomelelo in Kwebu. (laughs) And beautiful pronunciation. Thank Thank you. (laughs) Have a thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Freestyle Flavor, a bi-weekly production. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you're alerted to every new uploaded episode. And if you'd like to get in contact with us here at the podcast, we'd love to hear back from you. Send your email to freshandfreestyleflavor at gmail.com. That's going to do it for this episode. In the meantime and in between time, I am Chef Tarsha. It's been a pleasure.